Hey, it's Andrew here, and today on the show we have Sean Klaus, the Chief Product Officer at Metromile and previous Head of Growth at Atlassian. We talked about how Atlassian measured success in the early days and their relentless focus on delivering value. We also touched on why enterprise users are more similar to the SMB counterparts than you think, Atlassian's land and grab strategy that fueled their expansion revenue, and the differences in tackling churn between B2B and B2C companies. If you have any aha moments while listening to this episode, I would love to hear what they are, and you can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. This was one of my favorite interviews to date. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With the browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest-growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael. And here's today's episode. Hey, Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, Andrew, great to be here. Yeah, thanks very much. It's exciting to have you today. You were one of the early people to actually start growth at Atlassian, uh, starting uh, as one of the first people in the team there and have been seeing it and growing it out over the next years, six years to over 50 people. Um, I want to just maybe start as well, and obviously I think you've progressed and you've moved on to new roles and you're now at Metromile, but uh, for the beginning of this, I wanted to actually just start and get touched on that growth team, sort of what was the motivations at Atlassian to start a growth team, when did you decide you actually needed one, um, and maybe you can as well just let us give us a brief intro into what Atlassian is and what it does. Sure. Yeah. Um, so that's right. I, uh, about, over about six years, I built out the growth team at Atlassian. But for those of your listeners who don't know um, about Atlassian, uh, Atlassian is a software company that makes collaboration tools. They're most famous for a tool called Jira, um, which is like an issue tracker that's used for all, all different types of tracking, um, but primarily software development. Um, but they're also famous for other products like Confluence, Bitbucket, uh, and, other, and other tools like that. Um, so yeah, the, in, in about, in about late, uh, 2012, actually, uh, the, the, I guess the origin story of the growth team at Atlassian is that we, well, Mike Cannon Brooks, one of the two CEOs had been observing the, um, emergence of a thing, which I guess the Valley was calling growth hacking. Um, and he was like, okay, well, here are these guys who are out there um, using these interesting tweaks to products that appear to be able to massively boost their growth. And the bit that was interesting about that was not the hacking bit, like the, you know, finding random channels that you could spam for acquisition purposes. That wasn't the bit that was interesting to us. What was interesting to us was the realization that 
such little things can prevent users from successfully capturing value from software. And similarly, such little things can prevent software from effectively spreading from person to person where those people could genuinely get value from it. And so here Atlassian was, you know, this already very successful um, software company back then. We were probably doing about 100 million in revenue, um, would be my guess at that time. So we we're already doing pretty well for ourselves. Um, but, uh, but Mike was like, well, I wonder if this could be advantageous for us, even though we're not building a consumer product, even though we're not building a product, you know, that's B2C, um, could there be a way we could leverage this inside B2B or enterprise? And I think that Atlassian was a particularly, um, you know, fertile ground for that type of idea because some of your listeners may know, but Atlassian also does not have a sales force. So even though it's in B2B and enterprise software, it didn't have a sales force. So very specifically for us, it was a clear and present problem to to make certain that the software captured as much value as possible and it landed as well as possible with as large an audience as possible. And so, yeah, so basically Mike was like, well, I I wonder if this thing uh, has value to us. And then he ended up um, wanting to start something. And so he picked me to lead that thing. And we ended up with um, a team of like five of us, I think we were at the start. And then, as you said, over a period of five years, we, we grew out to become a significant division, about 50 people strong with design, product management, product analytics, and voice of the customer, and a bunch of other different sub-departments uh, inside the growth team. Wow. Uh, and I love as well, like the, the like mentality and the thought process as well at Atlassian as well, never like looking for the short term growth hacks. It's always about delivering value and how do you keep on delivering value to customers in the early days when you were setting up just five of you, uh, what did, how did you go about actually defining what success looked like for the team and how did you see this evolve over time as you grew into a bigger team? Oh, yeah, that's that's a good one. Um, when when we first started out, um, our actual approach was to just prove that we could add value. Um, because you know, when you're in a very big, successful software company, um, there can be this, uh, I guess, perception that um, that these small tweaks to you know this big complex software that's been worked on for many years might not have very much value and why bother with the small stuff when there's other big stuff to go to be tackled so when we first started um, our actual goal was just to prove that we could meaningfully inflect the business and so we kind of zeroed straight in on conversion um, so we looked at a b testing uh, against evaluators of jira and confluence where we were attempting to meaningfully change the conversion rate um, between the groups we experimented on and the groups that, that we did not experiment on or the control groups. Um, and from there, we just wanted to prove that um, those differences would be worth more than we cost to run as a team and obviously, you know, actually change Atlassian's business in some way. And, you know, that's a pretty good place to start, I think, um, because, you know, basically we were we were kind of picking some of the low-hanging fruit at the start anyway, so we would expect to find some, some big wins and some ones that have meaningful um, direct financial impact. Um, but over time, uh, you know, our thinking became a lot more nuanced. Um, so instead of simply, you know, looking at the world in terms of, well, okay, how much revenue can we convert over a specific uh, time period, we started to look much more at what are the different phases that users go through, um, where do they drop off, why do they drop off, um, and we started to view the world, instead of specifically being about revenue, it was actually more about how could we touch as many users as possible and make those users as happy as possible. 
And the net result of that on the other side would be revenue. But, you know, you have to solve the first problem. Like you have to solve it from first principles in terms of actually delivering value to, to real users. And so we started to look at activation, onboarding, um, cross-sell, uh, you know, the sales funnel and all the other different kind of ways in which a product grows, expands and, and monetizes. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I think like as you evolve over time as well and you got smarter, you started uh, to, to get this insights into really focusing on the value side of things. You mentioned activation uh, being one of those areas where you started to focus on. Uh, one of the questions I had uh, in my mind is Atlassian, you do serve quite a wide user base and you have a lot of SMBs, but you also on the flip side have enterprise. And how did you go about activation when, when you were thinking about these customers in mind and these different personas? Uh, in the beginning, did you just treat them as one single persona and worked on an activation flow? And then over time, like how did that evolve as you started learning more about your customers? Yeah, um, I think what we learned over time um, was that enterprise users and um, SMB users were, were more similar than they were different. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that kind of the journey of a, of a thousand miles starts with a single step. And that single step, even for Jira inside of large enterprise, is usually somebody somewhere goes, we have a problem with our tracking. We need a new tracker. And they form the genesis of a new, of a, you know, a new landing spot for Jira. That, that human, whether or not they're in a very large um, enterprise or a, or a small enterprise, needs to take the software. They need to make it able to do something that others within the organization would find valuable. And then they share it with others inside the organization. Those people need to be convinced too. And, and then when you have a team that is successful within an organization, um, then it becomes much easier because then you spread from team to team. And then you go from team to team to department to department. And eventually, you know, you have a very significant footprint inside an organization. And and that was actually how Atlassian just always tended to think about the world in terms of land and expand, that success came from individuals and at the team level and that the rest would then, would then fall from there. And it is true that at times Jira, for example, might have been driven tops down. But, what's, but what is, I guess, you know, somewhat obvious is that a product that is very, very good at landing with individuals and empowering teams and making teams better, that type of product can land in SMB but but its strengths are not useless inside the enterprise. Like in the end, even in the enterprise, when it's being driven tops down, if people hate the software, like if they if they resent it, if they don't feel like it actually accelerates their um, process and their ability to get things done, then they will eventually find ways to usurp it and to and to try and get rid of it and bring in bring in other competitive products. So it's almost like products that that, that are good bottoms up are also generally very good in a top-down environment um, because they, they just don't demonstrate necessarily weaknesses. And I think what is driving that is effectively the, um, the, what used to be in the old days, there was a buyer persona and a user persona. And the buyer persona was the one that truly mattered because you were using a sales force to drive in software from the top at high ticket value um and so you cared about the buyer persona and box box ticking more than you necessarily cared about the user persona the ones who would eventually use it um and i think what's just happened is SaaS and um you know the modern web 2.0 and everything else have have just completely turned that around uh, to the point that now the user persona is the most important persona and the buyer persona is actually the, the second the second uh best or second most important yeah it's very interesting um and talking about that just a little bit more on the persona side of things. So when it came to activation, 
uh, itself, were you treating them differently than the user persona versus the buyer persona itself at Lassing in the beginning? Or did you have this insights from the get-go and said, okay, uh, when we look at retention and engagement overall, we really want to be looking at a user level and not at sort of this buyer persona level? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think from pretty early on um, at Elastian, it was clear that in, in order to win, um, you know, we were going to have to build a product that that had that landed very well with the developer, with the developer, I guess, customer base that, that were the primary users. Um, and so to some degree, we, we had a natural tilt in that direction. Um, on the other hand, like we also observed it happen. Um, and so what I mean by that is that there, you know, in the early days of Atlassian, there was certainly more high touch attempts to, to, to get the software into, into certain organizations. Um, but then we also observed at the same time, um, we would just randomly get these orders, large orders from customers. Um, and it would turn out that what had happened was they had started by buying, you know, one or two copies of Jira just on a corporate credit card somewhere inside the organization. And over time that it expanded and expanded and expanded to the point that it became like a significant enterprise order. So it was almost like the market was telling us um, what was important. Um, and, and like thinking about that from an analytical perspective, uh, what we noticed uh, and one way, I guess, that reinforced th- that was very early on in the growth team, we we were basically creating the analytical platform for Atlassian. So remember, this is back in 2012. So um, analytics was not as sophisticated as it is today. And we were building an analytics platform and we were looking at various data and we're trying to understand, okay, where is it that people fail? And one of the first reports that I ended up pulling um, was one that basically looked at the first week of a Jira installation. And I was looking at activity in the first week of a Jira install. And I think that our internal belief um, in the organization was that even though we were bottoms up, in the end, because it was a complex piece of software, we were expecting that what would happen in an evaluation is that somebody would down, would, would you know download it and install it or, or enable a web version of it and that they would probably have a checklist of things they were looking for, like things that, they, that were must-haves, things that were nice-to-haves and things that were deal-breakers, and they would probably go through some sort of checklist or, or criteria evaluation of the software and then make decisions. Um, and so we expected to see that in the month-long evaluation of Jira, we expected to see, you know, some usage happening in week one and week two and different types of features in week two or week three or week four um, as people were learning and deciding whether or not it could do what they wanted it to do. And actually, I mean, it, it, may, it may sound funny these days, um, but like the data didn't show that at all. The data actually showed completely the opposite. Um, which is that even for a complex piece of software that, you know, was to a relatively technical audience, um, there was no evidence that people did that, 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 they st- that they showed up with a checklist and that they gave you multiple days and they thought about you and they evaluated you. What the data showed was that in general, um, the decision was made to buy Jira within 30 minutes. And, and what I mean by that is that the analytics showed that in general, there would be up to... Basically, if you did a histogram of activity inside of Jira, you you would see that um, it, it, the vast majority of Jiras that did not purchase um, spent less than 30 minutes doing anything. They were not in the software for more than 30 minutes. Um, and the vast majority of the ones that did um, convert spent more than 30 minutes. And if you did a histogram, it was actually really stark that there was like the, this perfectly bimodal distribution. Um, and so even if we had believed that there would be, you know, an enterprise evaluation and that there would be an enterprise sales cycle and everything else, the data just didn't bear it out. 
That's super interesting. Um, talk us a little bit about how you went and how you set up the histogram itself uh, to figure this out. And- oh yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, all I did was I was took the um, all the product analytics from inside the product. Um, and it was pretty well instrumented, uh, long explanation about how and why, but, um, it was relatively well instrumented in terms of surface area. And so basically I took any given event and then I, then I considered the instance as being used as being active for a five minute period after any event had been triggered. So events were triggered by humans. And then, then I gave everybody like a five minute, um, you know, trailing usage, um, I guess, some based on every event that, that they triggered. So if I triggered two events um, in 10 seconds, then that would be five minutes and 10 seconds of active usage. Um, and so then I just histogrammed it from there in terms of total active usage um, by uh, converted and non-converted um, instances or installations of Jira. And what happened was that it was really obvious. This bimodal distribution was super obvious the first time I ran this ran this um, uh, uh, query. And I was kind of shocked myself. And I showed it to um, uh, one of the CEOs. And his first response was, this data is kind of unbelievable. Like, and, uh, and he was like, oh, well, I think there might be a bug in the data. And I think, you know, in hindsight, um, if someone is, is asking if there's a bug in the data, you usually know you're onto something. Either that or there is a bug in, 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 the, in the data. Like this data was so surprising to us that it was basically, is there a bug in the data? So I went and ran the exact same analysis, but this time I did it from the um, access logs. So I basically used every request into the Jira instances and I gave them a five minute um, you know, uh, you know, count up or whatever, as I described before, and exactly, the, it, it was exactly the same. Basically, the the it was very very clear that um, a Jira that was not going to purchase spent less than less than thirty minutes playing with the software, um, which is kind of incredible for a piece of software that at that time had already been being developed for like eight years, nine years. It was like it was an incredibly powerful piece of software, and yet people gave it less than thirty minutes before they made their purchase decision. Yeah. It's fantastic. And then from there, did you sort of try and dive into what that usage looked like of uh, people over 30 minutes? And did you find any patterns in that data or it was just really that key insight that they needed to be using it for more than 30 minutes first time? Yeah, I mean, the, the 30 minutes actually, I mean, it's it's intellectually interesting, but it's not that interesting um, in, in that, you know, whenever I advise people these days in growth, I, I explain that like time is not really, doesn't really mean anything to an individual. And what I mean by that is that, is that what actually happens is that I start with the piece of software and then I have to work out how to set it up to get it to do something that I care about. I have to work out, I have to reach my aha moment. Like I have to have something that makes me go, oh, I see that I can solve a problem that I care about with this software. And then I have to have my habit forming moment. So I have to form a habit where I go, okay, every time I have this problem, which I have somewhat regularly, I immediately go to this tool. And so when you think about that, the reason time is not relevant is that some people will go through that process very quickly. Others will go through that process very slowly. Uh, There's natural variation because people have meetings and otherwise go around and do things. The real problem is when people do not achieve those those milestones at all. Um, And so I feel like it's a growth team's job to truly understand what is driving those moments, like the the setup moment, the aha moment, and the habit-forming moment, and make certain that all of those things happen to as great a degree as possible. And so in Jira, for example, one of, one of it turns out that one way you can measure activation in Jira is you can measure if three issues have been created. In, in a Jira where, where, an issue, where a project has been created and three issues have been created, um, you have a drastically higher chance of that instance converting and, and becoming a paying instance. 
However, like that three issues doesn't really tell you anything um, because the three issues is an outcome, uh, uh, sorry, an output, not actually an outcome in terms of um, the process by which a user gets enough value to want to create three real issues and begin using Jira in that way is, is what you're attempting to incept. Um, so it's a valuable measure, but not something you can push or force or, or insist that users do in, in a meaningful way. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and then, so these insights as well, the activation and you realize you needed to have, th- like a user needed to do three issues within that time. Um, was this not something that you pulled out when you initially looked at usage across the board and tried to understand what happens within that first week? So was there this insight that they needed to create these three issues within a certain time frame? How did you go about sort of getting that understanding and insights? And was it a combination of looking at that initial histogram that showed you the amount of time they need to be spending in the tool? Uh, kind of. Um, but basically what we knew was that, um, you know, within, basically it was game over in the first week. A different way to think about that histogram was that, like, if you have not successfully gotten um, an instance activated in the first week, then it's highly unlikely it will be activated at all. And so, so that was a useful insight, but then we needed to dig into um, the exact, you know, activation flow and how to quickly get instances activated in the first week. And so the three issues thing flowed out of trying to get to a deeper understanding of what it meant to have successfully completed your aha moment. So, so as we dug into more of the analytics, we kept finding these interesting correlations. So for example, um, like after you first collaborate on an issue, like you share an issue with somebody else and somebody comes to that issue and does work in that issue, that is also an incredible predictor of conversion. Um, and so when we saw these like strong correlations in the data, we then had to fit that to a model of what it means to be activated. And, and as I said, what you're really looking for is you're looking for proxies that tell you that um, somebody has had their has made it past setup, they've made it past their aha moment, and they've made it to the habit um, formed. Um, they've formed a habit. Um, and so, and so the three issues and the collaborating in an issue um, bits of data were found during our search for what it meant to know that an that, that um, instance was activated, but all they did from there was inform a set of experiments. So we then set up a set of experiments. We're going, okay, well, what is the quickest possible setup experience we could have? What do we need to know in order to set up the instance as quickly as possible? And then, okay, what, how would we, after they had completed a setup, drive them to an aha moment? What would that aha moment be? Is it when they collaborate with the user for the first time? And if so, how do we get them to do that? And then, okay, after they've done that, how do we make the instance pull them back? Like, the, how, do we, how do we repeat the value of that, um, of that outcome when they have that need again? So how do we make certain that they form a habit rather than just trying us once and getting, getting some interesting value but not, you know, thinking of us again and, and deepening their engagement with us? Yeah, uh, I, I find it fascinating as well. I think as well, because on the other side as well, Jira is quite a complicated product. Uh, and when you think about as well the different use cases that you can use Jira for, uh, it, there are a number of different use cases that teams could use the tool. How did you go about then sort of understanding and optimizing for which uh, actions you want to do sort of drive when it came to you, the setup, aha, and habit moments with the different use cases? Yeah, yeah, that's 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 actually super interesting. Um, and so you're right. And and Jira has a large number of surface area, like a large surface area in terms of features, and also a large surface area in terms of the types of users who use it. 
Um, so, for example, there might be a developer who, you know, has a need to, you know, uh, understand the code changes that they made as well as get requirements clear, et cetera. There might also be a product manager who cares about prioritization and ranking and sprint reporting, et cetera. And there might just be a, like a management stakeholder who cares about uh, release cadence and what's coming in the next release. And uh, there are a bunch of different stakeholders who have, who have different sets of needs. Um, and so I think there are two ways you, you can approach this. One is that the number one thing you have to do is identify what the user might be there for and get them to some moment of feeling like this product can actually give them that as quickly as possible. Um, and so if you're starting in, in Jira and you don't have all of the, um, like you don't have enough information to necessarily guess who they are, then, then you can still work. Like you can still, for example, if, if you're setting up Jira, there's a bunch of painful stuff you might do to set up Jira, but there's also the very basic stuff that has to be completed. So you would set up the, the, the fastest possible um, flow to get that minimal setup completed so that they can move on to the, to um, some use case that might show value to them. And then you might set up like a, just some beautiful moment in terms of project creation and issue creation with the idea that you're trying to build a very generic experience of what it is to, um, you know, set up Jira and then start tracking things and see some of the collaboration and value from there. So you, you can build like a, like a, I guess a generic but best practices activation, activation flow. Um, or you can take it the other way, which is you can attempt to work out who people are, what type of persona people are, and then give them exactly what they want. Um, so, for example, you might ask them, well, if you're a product manager, um, then then I, I want to, here's the minimum setup you need to do, and then here is how you might do sprint management or prioritization or something inside the product. Uh, and so we did a lot of that. Like we experimented with all sorts of things, including, like I said, the generic but best practices onboarding, as well as um, very segmented onboarding. Um, and I think that to the degree you can, segmented onboarding is usually going to work better, um, except that in general we found that trying to segment people by who they said they were was not very successful. So if we, for example, had a onboarding flow where we asked you, are you a developer? Are you a product manager? Are you a, you know, executive stakeholder, for example, and then tried to have an onboarding flow behind that, what would happen would be that, um, would be that people would get frustrated. So, so if you were a developer, you might still be very interested in, um, you know, uh, sprint reporting. Like you may just be a very producty, product uh, oriented uh, developer, or you may be very very oriented towards source control. So they're not a very they're not a very great way of defining what you're there for, like who you are and what you are here for or how you think about the world are not necessarily that perfectly over overlapped. Um, so we ended up with a, a much simpler approach, which was basically offering three available options, which was, okay, would you like us to handhold you in starting to track some work in Jira? Would, would you like to, are you an expert and you would just like to be left alone to, to explore the important piece of the product? Or would you like to be shown what is already configured inside this Jira? Which I guess is a very generic set of options. Um, and at that time, that, that turned out to be the best uh, at threading the needle between the very simplified onboarding and very handheld onboarding uh, and the segmented onboarding. And just thinking about the different levels of sophistication of your users. Um, yeah, exactly. 
Yeah. So I wanted to touch on the next thing as well, because we, we touched on it a little bit earlier. And I think one of definitely the big success of Jira is that land and grab uh, model, as you mentioned, where expansion becomes like a really critical part uh, within an organization as you have an individual bring it in and then it slowly starts to spread organically throughout the org. Um, were there any things that you tried though yourselves uh, to facilitate that organic growth within an organization and trying to get teams to try Jira in different ways and getting them to introduce it to other team members? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's always the, the goal, um, you know, in collaboration software and in fact, a lot of different software, um, there are actually these, these cases where the software interacts with non-users, like users interact with non-users using the software. And really, I mean, that's just a viral loop um, as might exist in a, in a B2C uh, company or a social network, for example. And so it's super important to kind of think about those engagement points and think about how you can convert those non-users into users. Um, so we used to look for, for example, inside the product, like where could we um, encourage somebody to invite other users? Um, and we actually spent a lot of time looking at looking at uh, where exactly invite moments happen, where there is a natural invite moment. Um, and so it turns out, for example, in Jira, there's a natural invite moment after you have um, created a sprint. Um, and you've put work in the sprint and you're ready to commence work, you naturally have this moment where you want to invite the people who might care about the work that is in that sprint or be the people building the work that is in that sprint. So we actually experimented with, like, for example, invite dialogues and invite flows in many, many different parts of the, um, of the UI, and most of them failed, except when they happened to be at that natural um, collaboration point. And so that one, that one really, really worked. Um, and we had another one where... We experimented with um, setting it up so that people would share um, the issues, for example, via email, like share the uh, the work that was being um, conducted over email, and then with, with the point being that some of those people who will read who will read the email will then click on the links, and that will take them into the product. And then we set it up so that if you weren't a user, you could request an invite into the software. Um, so effectively, the non-user gets exposed to some of the content in the in, in the software, then they click through to see some of that some of that content. They can only access some of it in that way. Then they are invited, or they request an invite, and then they complete the loop by coming back into the software. I love that. I think so often, like the user invites is something that's done during sign up, and then it's typically forgotten about afterwards. But just hearing you say it, it makes total sense as well. It really like triggering those moments when uh, they, you need to encourage the collaboration because they've sort of started to get that value, they've set things up and now it's starting to time to work with people. Um, yeah, just quickly, just quickly on that one, I think that's actually really interesting because, um, because when you think about the emotional state that a user is in when they're first signing up for a piece of software, um, they're usually in a, uh, a state of disbelief in terms of they would like your software to be able to help with, it, with the problem that um, they think you solve, but they're not really sure you're going to be able to solve their problem. Or even if you could, whether or not they would successfully be able to make your software um, successful inside the organization they're part of. And so what's ironic to me about like um, invite flows being very, very early on is that one of the highest political risks or emotional risks you can subject yourself to is inviting your colleagues into a piece of software. So when, when you do that, you're actually effectively staking your political reputation or some of your political capital on this piece of software. And when the software is unknown, like you, you've not yet demonstrated to the person that you can actually successfully solve their problems, it's like 
It's, almost, it's a very janky thing. That's exactly backwards, right? Whereas when you think about having successfully shown them some value, that's the moment they're like, oh, this thing's really cool. I want to share it with somebody. So how do you get in front of them at that moment when they know that you can solve some of their problems and that their colleagues will be impressed? Absolutely. Um, and this is what I think goes a little bit then again, uh, a touch of subject I wanted to touch as well was about um, word of mouth. And I think Jira as well as you know, Atlassian as a whole is one of those things where 80% uh, come from incoming sales is from word of mouth. Uh, I want to see, like, did you ever do any sort of research and diving into trying to understand the type of quality of traffic that was coming? And, and did you see any variances when it came to word of mouth traffic? Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, about about eighty percent of all of our incoming traffic was was unattributable in terms of it was it was basically word of mouth, um, and yeah, I mean, like I guess what we observed was that, um, and and perhaps this is this is the opposite for, of some uh, of some other companies out there, which is that the unattributed traffic ten- had a tendency to to drastically outperform the attributed traffic. Certainly, anything to do with like. Um, branded search or unbranded search, search engine marketing, um, kind of, it, you know, it just outperformed everything. It was easily the best performing traffic. Um, and, and, and I guess, you know, the way I intuit that is that, um, is that the whole land and expand strategy was, all, was always about um, getting to some user somewhere in an organization giving them a a bunch of value, like way more value than you cost, like drastically more value than you cost to the point that it made perfect sense for them to spread it within their team and then from team to team. Um, And then eventually you just get this like uh, incredible word of mouth machine because you have a lot of users who love what you were doing and you were so inexpensive and easy to spread that you just naturally spread. And when you think about that from Atlassian's perspective, the way that manifests itself is this unattributed traffic because what's happened is what has actually happened is that somebody else who we did know in some company has, um, has seeded the software inside that company, but now another team inside that company or, you know, yeah, another team inside that company has has seen value here and they have just like stood up a new one entirely independently of the first year. And so that's why so much of our business ended up coming um, in this expansion play. We used to we used to talk a lot about um, inside of Lassian, we talk about new to existing and, and new to new. Um, so basically we would look at expansion revenue uh, inside customers and then, and then we'd look at new to new. And new to new was basically clients who we'd never seen before or, or we couldn't identify that we'd ever seen before. And we were really, really focused on making certain that both were amazing. Um, certainly we did not want to just expand revenue um, from existing uh, clients. So, so we cared very much about ne- negative MRR churn, et cetera, um, in, those, in those groups, but we never mixed the two, the two types of revenue together because we needed to take the new to new revenue and keep it um, and so make make those people successful, and then they would become the new to existing revenue pool. But we never we tended never to talk about those two metrics together. We always kept them separate, so we didn't convince ourselves that our success was being driven by you know revenue expansion inside already successful customers. We still had to be landing inside new new teams and new companies in order to continue to build a massive word of mouth business. Very interesting. What was the main motivation to go about it and, and report in that manner? So you mentioned, obviously, you're not killing yourselves as well. Uh, but what led to that insight and said, okay, let's break it down this way? Um, yeah, I mean, I, th- 
I think the main reason was um, was that uh, we we just wanted to, we we could see that we were at, starting to write bigger and bigger ticket deals, um, and that was happening because we were seeing you know massive expansion inside inside logos we were already successful in, inside, and it was just when you consider that uh, Atlassian's pricing structure is set up so that um, the opening price is so so low. Um, that it deliberately makes it easy for new um, clients to use the software and or to or to commence with it, and so we recognise that um, that the revenue, the new to new revenue, no matter how successful we were, would almost always be dwarfed by the new to existing. And the thing is, if we if we merge those two metrics and we talked about them together, then the whole business would just naturally become oriented towards the bigger number, and the whole business would naturally become motivated to drive up the new to existing number. But that would just be sealing the seeds of our own demise um, because our model was predicated on top of landing landing easily and landing inexpensively okay. in new customers. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, I want to fast forward a little bit now uh, to your current role as Chief Product Officer at Metromile. And uh, I think this is quite a big uh, change in terms of the environment uh, itself. So um, for those that aren't familiar, Metromile is a B2C company who's disrupting the insurance space. And sure, maybe you can as well give a little bit of a, a, a pitch on that as well. But my question when it comes to this now is you've traditionally been working a lot in the B2B space and you've been working on retention and engagement strategies in a B2B company. What are some of the biggest changes you've noticed now moving over to B2C and specifically because Metro Mile is trying to disrupt insurance in a way that insurance is typically a set and forget uh, type of thing, whereas now Metro Mile is trying to do a on-demand, uh, and you can excuse me if I'm butchering this a bit, Sean, but it's an on-demand uh, service for insurance, for car insurance. How are you seeing this change now and how are you tackling um, retention and engagement in this new business? Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so, so Metromile, we make um, paid-by-the-mile car insurance. So, basically, um, if you drive less th- than other um, people, which it turns out that 65% of Americans do, if you drive less, you pay less. Um, and I guess the not-so-dirty secret of the insurance industry is that, in general, the people who drive more have, have much larger losses. Um, and so the people who drive less are fundamentally subsidizing those people. Um, but on a deeper level, what we're trying to op- offer is like a high-tech insurance product, right? An insurance product that um, you can control your costs based on um, the amount of driving you do as well as like a friendly app and everything else. It's fundamentally like a technology-driven insurance company. Um, and, and I guess uh, you're totally right. It's a bit of a weird jump um, from, from B to B to B to C. Um, but one thing I love about it and one of the things I was most keen to experience was the, the different challenge of selling a product in a market where um, it's a compulsory good for anybody who drives. Um, people kind of purely just shop on price and they kind of resent their insurance companies. And I was like, well, can we bring like a better digital experience to this product? Can we bring an experience that offers like continuing value from your insurance company rather than like a set and forget um, and resent maybe um, product, which is, which is how most people engage with their insurance company here in the United States. Um, and so that's what we and, and so that's what we've set out to do. Um, and uh, and uh, one thing that's been really interesting about that is that um, is that when you think about like landing a Jira or a Confluence, it's not easy. Um, and the reason it's not easy is because you've got all these different personas who access the software, um, and you need to make them successful, and it's quite complex and everything else. Um, 
However, like ironically, my experience at Metromile has been that um, has been that the same tools used in in a in an environment like Jira actually work quite well in um, Metromile, a consumer product, because in the end, the same goal is to simplify the product so much that it is perfect. It is perfect because it fits exactly to a consumer's needs and the way they think about the world. And the, and the thing is that that in the um, you know enterprise context, the B two B context, people will cut you more slack, right? Because the, their colleagues are already successful on this piece of software, or because um, you know they just know that you're the winner in the industry, or other or other, or just because they're developers and they're more willing to experiment with a piece of software. Um, I thought it was really hard to convince them and to make it simple enough for them, but it's nothing compared to the consumer world. Like in the consumer world, people fundamentally don't believe you. They don't believe anything you say and they're, and they're right not to because people are just always broadcasting these messages of better savings, better customer experience, better quality. Everyone just says the same thing. Um, and so in, in the insurance industry, you have to like take that and take it to the whole next level. Like how do you, how do you make your product so perfectly simple and yet good and valuable that in our case, for example, a retiree in Florida can understand it just as well as can an, an urban millennial here in San Francisco. And that's really hard when you've got people with such diverse um, starting points, like truly diverse personas. Uh, and so, and to double down on that, um, as you mentioned, it's like a set and forget product. So, so how do you, um, once you have sold them, um, this insurance, how do you meaningfully help them in their life other than when they have to make a claim, which unfortunately about 10%, um, of insurance policyholders would probably make a claim in any year, which is a very traumatic experience for the other 90%. How do you deliver them value? So you're not just, you know, this product they have to pay money for, but they don't get any value from. Um, and so we spent a lot of time thinking about that. And we um, have built out a series of, you know, features that are enabled by the product that we sell. So as I mentioned, we sell paper mile car insurance. And so, and so what we do is you install the device in your vehicle and that, and that device tracks your miles. And that's how you pay us basically pennies per, per mile that you drive. Um, but the upside of having this, having this device in every vehicle is that, for example, we know the location of, of the vehicles. So we can, for example, if you can't remember where you parked your car, we, we have a find my car feature in, in the app. Um, if you want to budget miles or your fuel costs, you can do that in, inside our app. We can show you the engine codes um, in your car if your car has engine codes showing. And in San Francisco, for example, we give people street sweeping warnings. So if the car is parked um, on a street where there will be street sweeping, we warn them that there's going to be street sweeping the next morning, so they don't so they don't don't get a ticket. So those nice. are kind of just these consumer experience things we can do to make what is basically normally an infrequent use case um, piece of software or an infre- infrequent use case. Um, product and we can make it more frequent in a, in a way that benefits the, the user um, and allows us to deliver a much better experience, a much more engaging experience. And keeps you in that habit zone as well of that monthly cycle and continually using. Uh, it's incredible. Yeah, exactly. I, I love yeah, bringing that sort of mindset that you had from Jira itself there, like really focusing on delivering the best product possible to an industry that's typically sort of just like, uh, let me take your money and then... Uh, Hopefully, you don't have to come and claim it back at some point when you need it. Um, So I think for for myself today as well, Sean, this has been a super interesting call. Uh, Thank you so much for joining. Uh, It was really, really good to have you on the show. 
Um, for the listeners out there, how can they keep in touch and how can they follow uh, some of your content online? Sure. Yeah, if they'd like to follow, uh, my Twitter handle is Sean M. Klaus. That's S-H-A-U-N-M Klaus, C-L-O-W-E-S, um, at Twitter. Or you can follow me at seanklaus.com, which is my blog as well. Awesome. Well, thanks very much, Sean. It's been a pleasure having you on the show today and uh, wish you the best of luck now in the new role going forward. It's been great chatting, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.